You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. My guest today is a New Englander, a bow tie aficionado, and a renowned health IT guru. Lee Barrett is the executive director and CEO of the Electronic Healthcare Network Accreditation Commission, or ENAC. Under his leadership, ENAC prepares healthcare organizations to better prevent and protect themselves from breaches in security. As Lee says, it's not a matter of if your organization will be cyber attacked, it's a matter of when. In fact, according to a recent Fierce Healthcare article, healthcare data breaches reached an all-time high in 2021, impacting 45 million Americans. That's a sobering fact. But let's circle back to Lee's story. In the mid-90s, at the behest of the government, Lee helped draft the blueprint for standardizing electronic healthcare data exchange and for establishing the guardrails to ensure the privacy and security of that healthcare information. This blueprint formed the foundation for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, better known as HIPAA. But he didn't stop there. Listen up, dear listeners. What you're about to experience is a masterclass in the development of digital healthcare and trusted data exchange. I'm pleased to welcome Lee to our show. Well, Lee, it's so great to have you on the show today. You know, Melanie, it's terrific. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you are a health IT and security guru, and we are going to talk about some really serious issues related to healthcare data privacy. But I thought maybe we'd start on the lighter side first. So you live in New England, right? I do. Yeah, I do. I live, yeah. I live in uh, in New England and have lived here all my life. I am a true New Englander, like I think you are as well. I've had many opportunities, and I've worked for companies, you know, in Utah and Tennessee as well. And for each one of them, I said, "Listen, I'm not uh, moving. So either you're interested in having me, and I will commute." Uh, or not, because I don't want to move, and my family didn't want to move. And so it's all worked. That's great. No, I am absolutely a New Englander. We did move to Washington, D.C. We're loving it here, but my heart is in New England, especially at this time of year, which for all of our listeners right now, it's fall, and I am sure that it's beautiful. <laughs> we love it. We love we love this time of year. It's, it's gorgeous. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the other thing that I think is just fun fact about you is that you have an affinity for bow ties. You're not wearing one right now, but where did that come from? I started wearing bow ties probably about eight years ago. I saw a couple of people wearing bow ties and I said, you know, I really like that look. I'm going to try it. People were telling me, gee, that, that look looks great on you. And I was, I was having fun with get buying different types of very vibrant bow ties too. And so it's just stuck with me. It's a signature 
And um, no, I've seen pictures of the fun colors. And so, well, why don't we dive into healthcare? Sounds good. Let's do it, right? How did you get started in healthcare? Well, I actually went to, to school uh, and majored in English. And I was going to go to law school. I get accepted to law school, but uh, at the last minute decided not to do so. And so um, one of my first jobs was working for Mass Mutual in their office automation area. And they put me in charge of running their data center. And so I started to learn uh, a lot about data centers and data center operations. And I started to learn as well how to code. At Travelers, that's really where I got into healthcare. The first couple of positions that I had at Travelers was to run their life and annuity IT business. And so I started doing that. I had been doing that for about a year where then I got selected to uh, go over to the managed care employee benefits side. So I got into running, uh, being very involved in the whole claims operation uh, for, for our uh, managed care business. And then I also, what ended up happening is that the individual who ran, who was president of uh, Travelers Blue Managed Care Business, was called to Washington to meet with then Health and Human Services Secretary Lou Sullivan. He and the CEO for Blue Cross Blue Shield, Barney Trzynowski, were asked by Lou Sullivan to come to Washington, and Trzynowski charged both of them with developing a report on healthcare, on administrative simplification. And he wanted that report delivered to him in six months at the Washington Press Club. So uh, Joe Brophy came back from that meeting, called all of his staff and said, I need one person that's going to, from Travelers, that's going to lead this with the other person from Blue Cross Blue Shield and to put this report together. Who's the person? that should get that nod here from travelers. I guess they all looked at each other and said, Lee Barrett. So I got a call from Joe Brophy's secretary, administrative assistant, and said, Mr. Barrett, Mr. Brophy wants to see you right away. Now, I don't know Joe Brophy from a hole in the wall. I've never met him personally. I go to his office. So I go into Joe's office, which is probably about 3,500 square feet, of, of office space, multiple couches, all of this stuff. And all these people are there, and Joe Brophy. And Joe says, Lee, come on in. And so I came in. So he laid it out for me. And he said, here's what we're going to do. Everybody here has said, you're the guy uh, that needs to be co-leading this with uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. And you'll be reporting to me on a daily basis. And so we put that together. That is how Weedy, the work group for electronic data interchange, was formed. And we put together about over 100 organizations, both Joe Brophy and Barney Trzynowski made calls, got all of the health, not only plans, but provider organizations, major associations within healthcare involved. We had probably over 75 people that we were working with to develop that report. And we delivered that report, Melanie, within six months. 
Lou Sullivan loved it so much, he asked for another report in another six months as a follow-on, which we did. And that became the foundation for HIPAA. It, we, we, not only, we not only founded Weedy, but it became the foundation for HIPAA in 1996. So all of that data, all of those reports, I know it's, this is kind of a long story. That's but, amazing, though. This is, this is an amazing story. And then in 91, I also started the Accredited Standards Committee, X12N. X12N is the entity that I chaired that and had a vision to create a single set of standards, EDI standards for the industry. For all of the listeners, they probably remember that back then in the 80s, the end of 80s, 91, we had over 435 different claim formats that were being used for healthcare. My vision was to create a single claim form that could be used for dental, healthcare, and uh, health plans, as well as for providers, which was the 837. I founded the insurance subcommittee. We put together a healthcare entity underneath that, along with personal lines and, and other aspects of healthcare. Basically, there were five of us that started it to over 400 people that were actually attending. We developed all those standards. I chaired it for eight years until all those standards were adopted under HIPAA. So, and then at that point, I retired from that job. I had accomplished my vision of creating a singular set of, of standards, which we're all using today. Then I turned that over and I also, at that point, I, I became chair of Weedy, uh, for two years in 1999 and 2000. So those, those are some of the history aspects of kind of my, my background in uh, healthcare. So then all of that makes sense then in terms of your involvement in standards. Where did the involvement in security, healthcare security come? I always had a passion for privacy and security. From the standards days when we were working on all these transactions, even then we were we were all talking about privacy and security of this data. I mean, when you when you start to think about the fact that okay, now we're going from a lot of these paper claims to moving the needle to electronic with EDI transactions, that was going to increase the volume of data claims and PHI that was going to be occurring and being exchanged. And so it was always a passion. I, I think that what, what ended up happening for me is uh, Dr. Bill Braithwaite was at that point a senior policy advisor for Health and Human Services. Bill was attending our X-12 meetings and meetings for the insurance subcommittee. Bill had been charged to really do a lot of the research to put together, and he was charged to develop the HIPAA legislation. So Bill and I became very good friends. So Bill really spent a lot of time with me on educating on privacy, breaches, the, the aspect that here we are going to be exponentially increasing data exchange and the whole issue around what that vulnerability was going to be to the healthcare industry. So I would tell you that Bill really was a major influencer for me. And then 
I worked with Bill as Bill was developing the HIPAA legislation. Bill was really the, the author uh, at HHS. And then Bill actually asked me, along with uh, one other person, he asked us to be going around and increasing awareness in the industry. Now, I can't tell you that uh, we were met with open arms in 96, 97. As more and more people started to understand, as we focused on kind of the risks, um, the risks of data breaches, the risks of data being compromised in some way, people started to understand better and started to become a lot more aware of the risks and the issues and the dangers. So I would tell you, Melanie, that was really where I got my focus on security and privacy. And then what what ended up happening uh, that you're probably going to want to know is, okay, well, with all of that, how did ENAC actually happen? Actually, 93 to 95, it was the Association for Electronic Healthcare Transactions, AFECT, which was at that time the Healthcare Clearinghouse Association. So all of the clearinghouses. And at that point, there were probably well over 100 organizations that were clearinghouses. What was happening during that time as well is the Clintons, there was concern that Hillary Clinton was focused on creating a lot of changes within the healthcare system. One of the things that was being talked about was potentially regulating the clearinghouses. So the clearinghouses got very concerned because they didn't want to be regulated. So they started uh, developing their own accreditation program. So they spent about a year doing that with their members. And then I got recruited. And so he said, listen, hey, we, we really want to do this. We want to spin this off as a 501c6 nonprofit. We can't run it. It needs to be very objective. They convinced me to take on the role of executive director. That's how ENAC was formed. I started doing a number of betas with some of the clearinghouses. But then what ended up happening is that nothing went forward as in relation to healthcare legislation. And so uh, it wasn't until about four years later that the states of New Jersey and Maryland put in state legislation and regulation that required any health plan in those states that used a clearinghouse that that clearinghouse had to be ENAC accredited. Well, now all the clearinghouses went through. And so we went from only having a few organizations to now all the clearinghouses. So really, you're telling the story of the digitization of healthcare and how standards came to be, how the security around, well, basically HIPAA came to be, and then this whole progression towards accreditation and certification, which is so important to me. As SureScripts, we are ENAC certified and very proud of that. So first of all, ENAC, it now stands for the Electronic Healthcare Network Accreditation Commission. Why is certification important today? I think the big, big aspect that has happened, which is really somewhat transformative, is that back in January 2021, Public Law 116-321 
was passed. What that legislation did was to put in place and to recognize that organizations like ENAC and High Trust, NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology, are the recognized security frameworks that the industry should be adopting. And in doing so, so if you kind of step back, a lot of organizations that have breaches today, they would not only go through the impact of the financial impact of loss of business and revenue because of a breach, but they went through the loss of reputation and credibility as a result. Very, very substantive costs to these organizations in the millions for each one of these occurring. Now, so organizations would, would go through all of that. And then what would happen is the Office for Civil Rights would also come then knocking on their door and saying, hey, we, we've seen that you had this major breach. We believe you've got a real issue here and we're going to investigate you. So they would then investigate those organizations and fine them very hefty penalties and fines on top of everything that they went through. So what this legislation did was then now put in place, if you use a recognized security practice like an ENAC into our accreditation and our trust frameworks, if you go through a third party entity, then what's gonna happen if you have a breach or a cyber attack in the future, we and we come in and we do an investi investigation, we will either not levy any fines and penalties, or if we do, it will be substantively less than we would have otherwise. That type of teeth and that type of endorsement, again, goes back to kind of the value proposition to organizations to go through a third party accreditation or certification. And it also provides a, what I would call a framework in an attitude within an organization a culture, at a cultural level to have good cyber hygiene. It's not the fact that organizations are going to be able to prevent a cyber attack, because they're not. Cyber attack is going to happen. And in fact, organizations are attacked daily by the hundreds. But it's not a matter of if, it's when. You know, you make me think about growing up myself. My dad was a hospital CEO. And there were weekends when we knew that he was going to be running an emergency simulation. And for technology companies, those are our tabletops. That's when we're, we're simulating how and who what you just described. Yeah, right? absolutely. absolutely. So important. Yeah, so important. Well, you know, let's back up for a minute. I, I want to go to the innovation in healthcare today, but I want to back up for just a minute and make sure for our audience, everyone understands why cybersecurity in healthcare is so important. What I've told people and I continue to tell people is that if, if your credit card is hacked and it is and made available on the, the dark web. It's worth about a dollar. Your electronic health record, however, is worth about $800. And well, the reason it's worth so much is that bad actors will take your electronic health record 
and they can do all kinds of fraudulent claims against it. Drugs, fraudulent claims, uh, durable medical equipment, you name it, for up to a year before CMS has the technology, fraud technology, will where they'll find out that somebody has, has done that or who the per, who that bad actor is. So they these these bad actors know that. So think about the millions that they can rack up against a particular individual during a year. I hear from individual solo practitioners all the time. Oh, Lee, I don't have to worry about being attacked. Nobody's going to attack my practice. What, what I only got a couple thousand records. I said, you're absolutely prime. Here's why. As far as bad actors are concerned, they know they can probably easily infiltrate your practice, get a couple thousand records, and think about it. A couple thousand records times $800, that's pretty quick money. But look what happens when you find out or it's found out that your patient's data has been breached. Are your patients going to feel comfortable coming to you? Do you think it's going to have any impact there? And two, if anything over 500 records has to be reported to the Office for Civil Rights, goes on the wall of shame for OCR, and you have to report it to the media. And so when you see your the article on your practice in the media, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have for patients? Well, they turn white. And so what I try to do is raise the bar. Healthcare is the number one industry for cyber attacks. Makes what you're doing and those of us working with organizations like yours even more important. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. All right. So there's a lot of innovation going on in healthcare technology today. So as new organizations enter healthcare and new uses for data really explode, what are the repercussions if organizations don't pursue accreditations or certifications and what are the benefits? I think today what's, what has occurred is that whether it's consumers or whether or not it's other organizations, whether it's SureScripts or many of our listeners, you have organizations that are performing work on your behalf. I hear organizations, some major health plans, for example, uh, numbers are like 2,000 vendors who perform services on their behalf. So think about it. All of those entities are working for you and they're performing some aspect for your organizations. Many of them are dealing with PHI. The thing today is that one, we are focusing with organizations to make sure that one, their hygiene, their cyber hygiene is where it needs to be. Two is that they're going through a third party assessment. Third is that we tell organizations you should have a third party risk management program in place. So what that means is organizations who have a third party risk management, this is a contractual obligation. So any entities that are performing services on your organization's behalf have to go through this third-party risk management, and they have to demonstrate that they've gone through an ENAC or a high trust, including the, the NIST uh, framework, and they have to verify that they have successfully 
done that before they're going to be able to do business on that company's behalf. What does that do? That raises the bar. The other aspect is really what, what has happened over, over the years and over the past, probably the past six years, the chief information security officer role has taken on a whole different role. Well, today, because of the cost of what a breach can do is from not only cost, but reputationally and you know, overall impact, that individual, along with probably several others, are now reporting to boards of directors or senior leadership on at least a quarterly basis. Boards and companies are investing significant dollars in whatever infrastructure is needed to support that. That's a far cry from where we were probably six or seven years ago. That was not there. But so you look at raising that bar. And lastly is stakeholder trust. Patients themselves have become a lot more educated and they're a lot more concerned about their data. And so consumers are also now forcing organizations to take the data and take them and how they're handling their data far more seriously. Again, this doesn't come down to whether or not an organization is going to stop or prevent a breach or a cyber attack. It's how good your contingency plan is, how good your cyber hygiene is, and, and how vigilant and the rigor that you have throughout the entire organization from educating and training all of your staff and keeping the awareness high. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And I, of course, having been in healthcare IT for many years, have gone through that education many, many times and witnessed the evolution of the role of the CISO, which you just talked about. So let's take a little different tact. I love to ask this question of guests on the podcast. I'm fascinated. You're fascinated with security. I'm fascinated with inspiration and how people get inspired, um, whether it be taking a walk in the morning or filling your head with lots of information from different places and kind of letting it sift through. How do you get inspired? I get inspired in a number of ways. My first inspiration was when I developed, going back to when I worked on developing those reports for um, Lou Sullivan, and Weedy was formed, and I really got quite an education on administrative simplification and on how many millions of families could not afford healthcare. When I then started X12N and to develop these transactions, and we knew based upon all of the work that we did, the significant cost savings that were that could accrue with implementation. What inspired me for eight years to volunteer my time was that if I could save one family where they could get healthcare coverage, that was my driving force. So that was my inspiration then. My inspiration today by trying to help organizations and raising awareness about breaches, cyber attacks, what people can do, working with organizations and raising the bar with organizations 
to try to help them to be in a far better position so they mitigate the overall exposure. I guess lastly, my final inspiration that, that inspires me today is I have been working for over six plus years on interoperability. I believe so much in it. The story that I use very quickly to show my passion and what inspires me is if you look today, if Lee who travels and I was in California and I got rolled into an emergency room unconscious, that attending physician would do everything possible to make me comfortable. But without my electronic health record, they really can't do much beyond that. So mortality goes up. Interoperability in the next three years, take that same scenario where Lee gets rolled into an emergency room. Somebody gets my wallet out of my pocket, keys in my driver's license number into their electronic health record system. It immediately pulls all these qualified health information networks as QHINs, and my EHR is pulled up in seconds. Now that attending physician will do everything they know, everything about me, they can do everything they possibly can for my condition. So now mortality goes down. I'm inspired to see what that can do and for patients and for people. The inspiration, I mean, that is part of what's just such an honor to work in healthcare period is that ultimately it's personal. It's an opportunity to impact patient health. So what a beautiful description of how your career has been doing that. And then the also the added impact that the security side of what you do is having on our own personal cyber health is um, so important. And yes, interoperability is hopefully going to have its day in the near future. That is a great way to end our discussion and what I feel like has been a full master class in health information technology and security and a great way to end our season on this podcast. So thank you so much for spending time with us today, Lee. Thanks, Melanie. Appreciate it. And thanks to all of your audience as well. Thank you so much, Lee, for spending time with us. As data exchange accelerates, it's more critical than ever that patient data is protected. As you said, healthcare is the number one industry for cyber attacks. On the bright side, it's inspiring to see you use your passion for privacy and security to protect this very hot commodity, patient data. It's also inspiring that your critical work began with a simple wish to help make healthcare more affordable through greater administrative efficiencies. Your work has had tangible impact. Thank you, Lee. It's an exciting time to be in the industry. We all know that there is more work to do at the intersection of healthcare, security, and data exchange. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll be able to continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.